Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the AMR Studio. Today, we are featuring an interview with Hele Agar from REACT, which was performed by Jenny on March the 11th. And this um, interview, it's a bit complementary with the seminar that she gave at UAC presenting the latest report by REACT. We're going to hear a little bit about her background and a little bit more into the report and their conclusions and the role forward in antibiotic R&D. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this month's interview. Uh, today we have the pleasure of talking to Hele Orgord from React. Would you be able to introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Yes, yeah, my name is Hele Orgard. I uh, am the deputy director of uh, React Action on Antibiotic Resistance uh, and their European um, office or node, as we call it. I've been with React for about five years at this point and come from previous positions where I've worked a lot on access to medicines issues and policy and advocacy. So I've previously worked with MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, as their advocacy person in, in Brussels, working towards the European institutions to advance policies on access to medicines in general. And before that, I was political advisor for a Danish MEP in the European Parliament. It's a, it's a very interesting background. To, I mean, it's it, you can kind of see how you move from one to the next. I mean, of course, access to medicines is a huge part of the antibiotic issue right now. Hence, one of the things we're going to talk about later. But can I ask how you got into this role? How did you start working with this kind of advocacy, as yeah, political advocacy? Hmm. And how did you get into the medicine side of it? So when you look at pe people's CVs, you know, you always get a feeling, or I often get a feeling when I read through that there was always a... a a purpose or that people always had like a, a, a real sort of clear idea of where they wanted to go and mm -hmm. when I'm looking at my own CV now that that's also the impression I take <laughs> but I can assure that, that that's not at all how it went down <laughs> and so I started you know in a completely different field as a I'm a trained journalist mm -hmm. um, I worked as a journalist for a couple of years after graduating and found out that it wasn't really necessarily for me. I kind of missed having uh, uh, more in-depth knowledge about something. Mm -hmm. um, so I went on to do a, um, a European master's in human rights and democratization. And after that, I was a bit sort of what to do with all of this and where to go. And, and I started looking around for more uh, politically oriented avenues and jobs and and there was an opening with uh, an MAP in the European Parliament uh, mm -hmm. that I then applied for uh, and got into. And then that sort of catapulted me into sort of a political world, which yeah. I didn't know much about uh, really when I started. I mean, I think I'm, I'm naturally sort of a, a bit of a political animal, but I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't engaged in sort of youth no. or anything like that. But then I was really catapulted onto the European stage and, you know, working in the European Parliament, understanding the EU from the inside, uh, starting to working on legislation and very quickly getting a feeling of, you know, the, the different avenues to advance certain issues, the difficulties, the political game of it. And, yeah. and I really liked it. <laughs> it feels like a very, um, there's a phrase in Swedish, at least, el dup, like you kind of get thrown into something and you get uh, introduced to something. It feels like one of those things that you 
can read about, you can know about, but you don't know it until you're in it. Yeah, very uh, much. Yeah. That's it. And it's very difficult to explain exactly how it is when you're on the inside there working. <laughs> you know, for those that aren't so familiar with sort of legislative processes at the level, <laughs> very shortly, I can say, you know, a legislative proposal comes from the European Commission and then it's debated in the council by the European member states and, and in the European Parliament by those that are the MEPs, so the members of the European Parliament that are directly elected in, mm-hmm. in elections every five years. And so the member states are obviously debating it from a perspective of you know the individual member states and their interests, whereas in Parliament it's debated much more on the political level, right? So mm. I would be working for a Green MFP, so I would be working um, uh, very much to advance uh, you know the, so the Green perspective on on a piece of legislation. Yeah, and these two institutions then subsequently sit together and negotiate with each other, so they have to come to an agreement among them. And the point I want to make here is that. There's much more sort of compromise seeking in these. Absolutely. So the European Parliament would have to come to a common position that was theirs, reflecting, mm-hmm. you know, the, the views of the directly elected MAPs. And so did the member states and negotiating with each other to come to a position. And then they had to come together and negotiate. So there's a whole training in kind of understanding how do you advance an issue? How do you build coalitions? How do you work across the political spectrum to to get support for something uh how do you frame a topic in different ways because naturally some aspects will be more appealing if you're very left-leaning or if you're very right-leaning or if you're a centrist yeah and how do you sort of push those buttons and i think that's very much what sort of catapulted me afterwards into to more of the advocacy world Mm -hmm. where i was then trying from the outside to influence these processes hearing how you talk about this background this you know balancing the individual members of parliament of the European parliament and how they they might be closer in coalition with people that are from a different country that it had the same sort of political background while then there you have the member states that are kind of national interests in a way but also interested in the unity of the of the EU as a whole it's all these different elements of kind of collaboration and balancing and all of this kind of thing i think you can kind of see that later if when we get to this to this report that we're going to talk about and also to understand that it's very rarely that your own perspective and your own vision of how to solve a certain issue is going to be applicable for everyone or suitable for everyone else. Or, yeah. And I think that's that's something that's very sort of that's shaped my worldview quite a lot um, yeah. in, in just understanding that, you know, we can go some way with, with sort of national action and, and, and these things. But at the end of the day, the, you know, the way forward to tackle global challenges, which antibiotic resistance, we will get to that, I guess, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a classic example of, you know, mm-hmm. it does require us to collaborate and to do that and, and get a solution. We need to, to <laughs> collaborate with each other and we need to find a way forward that not only works for, you know, rich people, but also work for people that are born in a less fortunate position. So you got into advocacy kind of through this perspective. That makes a lot of sense to me. But was there a reason why you jumped into into medicine access? So if I'm if I'm being completely honest, when I came to Brussels, there was a position with MSF that opened mm-hmm. up, a position that I would later get years later. But I remember seeing it and I was just like, that's the job I want. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew at that point that I was too junior, that I didn't have enough of the qualifications that was required. And, and so I got that job in the European Parliament and there, a little bit by coincidence, 
the MEP that I was working for was working a lot on, on health issues. Um, mm -hmm. And so she became the negotiator of a big piece of legislation uh, regulating clinical trials. And that was sort of where I was really sort of introduced into the R&D space, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Uh, because it was kind of setting, like revamping and setting the rules for how to uh, conduct uh, clinical trials uh, in Europe. And one of the key issues that we pushed back then was trying to increase the transparency on clinical trial results and making sure that not only good results were reported, but also that we would report bad uh, results would be reported. Yeah, the so negative that results that aren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Negative. So that science could progress and, and we could start learning from each other's mistakes and we could be perhaps more effective in how we're using our R&D funding so we're not repeating mm -hmm. the same mistakes over and over again. And yeah, so that was kind of the entry point. And then a couple of years later, that same position opened up <laughs> again. And then I was like, this time I'm ready for it. <laughs> but then you ended up at React. So I was wondering, we have talked about React before in the podcast a little bit in some of our earlier episodes, but I was wondering if you could give us a really brief overview of React as an organization and what role they serve. I mean, a couple of years after I joined MSF, I moved to Sweden for personal reasons. And then mm -hmm. MSF started to work on antibiotic resistance as well. And I was kind of in charge of that internally. So when I moved to Sweden, React was a natural sort of counterpart. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Playing uh, <laughs> with here. Uh, and we we had a couple of joint meetings and we did some lobbying um, meetings together or advocacy meetings um, towards the Swedish health minister and just kind of started figuring out that we were really quite compatible. And then they had a position opening up that I then sort of jumped over to. Mm -hmm. And so React, you know, one of the key features with React, I remember looking at this at their, their website, because when once you're in an organization like the MSF, you know, you, you become very sort of <laughs> committed to this, sort of like change, not charity and all of mm -hmm. that. And so... It was very important for me that, that React wasn't financed by the pharmaceutical industry. And it's featured very clearly on their website that, that they see that as a key issue for them to, mm -hmm. to be able to have an independent voice and to not have any sort of conflict of interest. And that was really appealing to me. And then React is also a global network, right? So it's not yeah. just the office that sits here in Uppsala. It's a network of nodes, as we call them. What we have in North America, we have one in Ecuador, one in Zambia now. It was Kenya back in the day when I started, and in India. So in a sense, you know, it's kind of mirroring a little bit of, of MSF that sort of had, you know, headquarters, but they also had a lot of field work and a lot of, you know, experience to draw from the context we're trying to achieve better solutions for. So, so that's really sort of a key feature uh, with React for me, that, that it, it is able to draw on the experience from a lot of different contexts. And I think that's yeah. that's also why, you know, I think that's really where the strength of React lies, that it that it has its network, that we are like, in some ways, we're not representative of the world, but we do have a lot of different perspectives internally. And that is very crucial for shaping the policy positions we take and, and the advocacy yeah. that we drive. I didn't actually know about React until I got into antibiotic resistance, but then when I started reading and getting more interested and involved, your name pops up all the time. <laughs> you see React yeah. in all these different contexts. So, I mean, for being a small organization, there's a lot of a lot of power there, <laughs> a lot of hard work too, I'm sure. There are other organizations that are working on related issues or access to medicines or yeah. in sort of on the animal side more, mm -hmm. but we're kind of the only one that is really sort of dedicated to antibiotic resistance. So, yeah. so we also naturally become sort of the reference point when other actors are looking to have, oh, we need to include a civil society perspective to turn to. Yeah. There isn't much to choose from. <laughs> React has done a lot of good work over the years. Uh, I know we've mentioned you guys before in the podcast, especially in a few reports, but you do have a very recent published report from React 
that we're going to talk about a little bit. I want you to maybe help us summarize and go through a little bit. It's called Ensuring Sustainable Access to Effective Antibiotics for Everyone Everywhere. I was wondering, Hella, if you could maybe go through some of the main topics of the report with us. And in this report, you gave a lot of uh, recommendations for things that can be done to improve the situation. And maybe we can go through those also a little bit briefly. It is open to the public, if I understand right. So this is something that anybody can read in detail if they want to, but so we don't have to go through all the details, but maybe we can talk about some of the broader points a bit. Maybe I'll start with a little bit of history on it because React has really been engaged in the R&D field mm-hmm. for new antibiotics for a very long time and has sort of been collaborating with both the EMA and the ECDC to get the first sort of pipeline analysis done to kind of get a feeling of what's the situation actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the situation when it comes to sort of new antibiotics on the way or in the pipeline? And, yeah. and that was a sort of assessment of the world or at least in Europe understanding that this is a pretty serious problem. We see resistance going up and we are not really seeing that new antibiotics is is being developed. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, this has been something that we've dedicated a lot of time to and have been you know, engaged in a lot of different processes and policy discussions and all of that to, to really try to advance. And back in 2009, React collaborated with the Swedish EU presidency and had like a big event that was organized then uh, together with the Swedish presidency that was kind of the first one to bring up this issue. Mm-hmm. And so now we're kind of 10 years later, well, 11, 12 years later, <laughs> and coming to a point where not much has happened. Yeah. So we thought it was time to sort of do an assessment of what the situation looks like now mm-hmm. and try to sort of clearly formulate based on our vision of how the world needs to tackle antibiotic resistance and based on our vision that you know it needs to be something that works for rich countries and poorer countries alike and try to formulate what does that solution look like. And what we quickly came up with or found out is that it's really, really difficult to write off in a sort of report format a pathway like this is the pathway that you should take these are the choices you take here here and here because it's complicated and for each step along the way there are a lot of different options that you can take so what we've decided to do with this report is try to identify what we think are sort of the five key challenges that needs to be overcome and in doing that that sort of comes from a frustration also that the, the global debate over the last five, seven years on how to fix the global antibiotic pipeline has been very focused on how do we make it profitable for industry to re-engage in this field? How do we yeah. solve the economic problem that it isn't as profitable to develop an antibiotic as it is to develop a, a cancer drug? And we thought that that was, you know, it's, it's relevant questions to ask, but it's not really reflecting the, <laughs> the full problem. There, there are a lot of yeah. different problems that we need to address in that. It's not only about fixing the business model in a way that makes the big pharmaceutical companies interested again. This is about getting you know, a better way of prioritizing our research so that mm-hmm. it becomes more driven by global health yeah. and health needs more than it becomes driven by you know, where is the most profitable market or what's yeah. the needs of profitable markets, which is often the US and the EU, yeah? So how do we how do we get a better way of prioritizing our R&D financing, right? Yeah. Not disconnecting a little bit from just who can pay the most basically, who can provide the most. Exactly. Yeah, so I mean we we have a little bit of a global problem that the countries that are paying those that are paying for R&D are 
primarily rich countries and philanthropies, we have an issue with the world not being able to address the health needs of countries that aren't able to pay for R&D, right? So this is not something that is exclusive for the field of antibiotics. This is something that is much, much broader and that, you know, the whole access to medicines community is is concerned with. This, This, the pull towards the needs of rich markets and where you can make money instead of sort of being concerned with how do we address what the world actually needs in terms of Mm -hmm. new medicines for also diseases that can't necessarily make a lot of money on, right? No, absolutely. So that was kind of the first challenge. What do we do to sort of get a a global prioritization, global health needs driven R&D agenda? The second challenge that we've identified is linked to the early stages of R&D. So there's been a lot of efforts in the last 30 years to develop new antibiotics and industry has taken some approaches that have turned out not to be very successful. And over the years, you know, more and more big companies have left the field to go, you know, direct their investments and human resources into more lucrative areas of R&D. You know, you could make a lot of money, you know, cancer drugs and and these hypertension and these kinds of, um, and so, so we've sort of, been left with a situation where all the sort of low-hanging fruits of antibiotics have already been picked and it's become increasingly difficult to develop new ones. And that's mainly to do with the fact that we haven't resolved some of the very basic scientific challenges of getting antibiotics <laughs> into very resistant bacteria yeah. and keeping them there. <laughs> you have to be very selectively killing only bacteria and ideally not the patient. Exactly. So questions of toxicity and all mm-hmm. of that, you know, still unresolved. And then on top of that, you've had companies and, you know, financial resources just being sucked out of the field, really, uh, or leaving the field, more the case of the companies. Mm. So really some compounding factors that have made it increasingly difficult. If I understand right, a lot of money is spent making small changes to old drugs that kind of improve in the short term, but then they have the same resistance issues later. They have the same other issues. A lot of these, I think they're often turned me too drugs that maybe kind of siphon more of the money if we're looking from a global perspective, siphon more of the money towards antibiotics than they should for the benefit they give. Uh, what we really need is to kind of concentrate on new, new mechanisms of action, new products, new everything. <laughs> exactly. No, you're summarizing it really well. I mean, it's not to say that, we, you know, that me too drugs don't have a value. They can certainly no. you uh, improve them so they yeah. have a, a better side effect profile or that it's uh, easier to administer or, mm-hmm. you know, there's improvements that makes it better for the patient. Yeah, That's different from solving, let's say, the big problem we have with, with you know, um, increase in resistance and very mm-hmm. sort of serious increases there. And so the question is, you know, if it's easier to, to get a new drug on the market that is, you know, a me too drug. Yeah. And there isn't really a market anyway to sort of, you know, there isn't really an incentive anywhere right now in the system that encourages companies to really go for like very, very difficult ones to develop. Yeah. To really go for the truly, truly innovative ones. We haven't really found a good way to get that done. Right? And mm-hmm. that's why we're seeing a, a pipeline today that is mostly sort of just changes or, you know, to existing classes of antibiotics. And the only promising sort of science we have is kind of stuck in the technique of pipelines. And like you mentioned before, a lot of the, the things that are 
there is maybe some progress happening on it's not focused towards the needs of low and middle income countries. It's more the high income countries like that. I mean, the example you guys use in the report, which I thought was very good, is the, the C. diff, which is really mainly an issue in high income countries. It's uh, hospital associated yeah. and it has all these other things, but it, it's important. It's not to say it's not important. It's just not, there's so much emphasis on it from what I saw. And I, I also recently, um, I think the Pew Trust also updated their pipeline analysis and also saw the same same sort of thing there that it's like half of the coming things or one and a fourth or something like that. A, a vast amount had to do with C. diff. And yeah. again, like it's very important, but it shouldn't take up that proportion of the effort of the resources in this area yeah. for what it is, considering that m- most of the world, that's not the primary issue. <laughs> in fact, it's not necessarily that it's wrong that there's a lot of efforts going into C. difficile and tackling mm-hmm. that, but we can't be naive either about why that is. <laughs> yeah. I, like I said, it's, it's good that there is that research. It's just a matter of if we're talking about limited resources and limited, I mean, there's, there's a discrete amount of effort, time, money going into this right now that doesn't help most people. Exactly. And I think and while it shouldn't be ignored, it shouldn't be the primary, maybe. Comparing it to, to what we're seeing now with COVID and all that, which mm-hmm. was, you know, at least some would argue it's a black swan event. But others would probably say, well, we had MERS and we had this sort of scale of it has obviously been surprising to everyone. Yeah. And so, in a sense, you can understand that we hadn't really developed the, the medical tools, the drugs, the vaccines, mm-hmm. the diagnostics needed to address this. But that's not the case for antibiotic resistance. We know no. what to do. We know what pathogens to target, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're just down to a question of whether or not we want to do it. I mean, this is a very good example with COVID. This wasn't a priority to understand these things in the beginning. But when it became a unavoidable, massive global issue... The resources, the time, the money came in. There's a lot left to do, but there's a lot of problems that have been solved. There's a lot of work that's been done. We have multiple vaccines that appear to be working very well. It's nice to see that like when the resources are there, when everything, everybody's working together and everything is going fine, the problem is manageable. I mean, it's hard to say in a situation where we're all still isolated, but it's improving. We're working on it. There's a lot of global collaboration. There are issues, of course, but it's nice to see, but then when you compare it to antibiotic resistance and you see, but where's this huge input of resources and money and time? And like you said, with the early R&D, the collaboration, working together and the negative, you talked about earlier, negative results, sharing that information. I mean, exactly. it would be so nice to see this happen in our field too. <laughs> but yeah, as, as much fun as it is talking about comparing everything and the current situation to COVID and everything like that. But I think we were closing in on maybe the third, third one. Yeah, focus yeah. of the report. So the third challenge that we have identified, which is, you know, the one that has probably gotten the most attention over the year, mm-hmm. that, that is about sort of how do you get a new way of financing R&D that isn't linked to recouping your investments through sales and by charging high prices once the drug is on the market, right? So that's the classic sort of pharmaceutical model, right? You do, uh, as a pharmaceutical company, you invest in bringing the drug to the market, you do clinical trials, you pay for them, you have costs involved uh, for that that are big. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in order to sort of be able to recoup that, you have your product patented, and then in the time that you then enjoy sort of a, a monopoly status on the market that is induced by the patent, 
you charge a relatively well, a high price often. Yeah. And you seek to sort of maximize your sales as much as possible before the patent expires or other monopolies that can, can be added to the patent. Yeah. And so there is this incentive to recoup your investments. And to be honest, it's not just your investments that you're recouping. You're also, you know, generating profit. I mean, yeah. Don't forget that we're talking about one of the world's most profitable industries, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's private companies do have as a as a goal to make a profit. I exactly. Mean, that's the legitimate sort of yeah. setup, right? Yeah. And I think that's just very important to keep in mind that that is the basis on which they're working. And so what we are suggesting is kind of coming at it from an angle where we're saying, well, we know that we need to cover R&D costs. You know, mm-hmm. clinical trials are expensive. They do cost money. We do yeah. not think they cost necessarily as much as industry would like them or, or portrays them to cost. And we, we think that there are several things you can do to reduce the cost a bit. But at the end of the day, it's a costly business. But if we if we find a way to both pay upfront throughout the way, mm-hmm. throughout the development of, of the drugs, so throughout the different phases, and we even think about sort of reimbursing or providing a public payment before we get to the actual market point or the drug is put on the market. Yeah. We can cut the link between the R&D costs and then the need to sort of recoup your investments and generate profit through the sales. No, so that's really sort of the two key features of what is known as the linkage that you, yeah. you separate it from the need to sell. And because you've already paid for the R&D by the point that it gets to the market, you don't have to sell it at a high price either, right? Mm. So you're removing uh, high prices and you're removing the incentive to sort of sell as much as you can yeah. in, during the patent time. And in addition to that, you're kind of rendering, you know, the patent afterwards a little bit irrelevant almost. Yeah. With the linkage, we're also coming to a point where, you know, if we do that, then we also realize that we do need to have rules that sort of can manage antibiotic, that make sure that they're sustainable, mm-hmm. pr- sustainably produced, that they're done in an environmentally friendly way, that they're registered in the countries where they need, that yeah. these can, you know, that we can start developing rules for how to use and antibiotics in a, in a more sustainable way. All of that, you know, yeah. become, you know, is moved to a different place because it's all of a sudden becomes our, all of our responsibility to take care of that. Mm. Than just the one that sort of sits on the exclusive ownership of it. Yeah. The one that sits with the patent, right? So what we are arguing to see is and what we really, you know, want to see with this report is having a debate about how do we create a system that by design is made to serve all of us yeah regardless of whether we're rich or poor how do we make one that is by design made to address global health needs all of our health needs mm. not just those or primarily those that affect those in rich countries right how do we design a system that makes the drug available to all of us yeah. from day one and how do we also couple it with a system that can act as a lever to sort of strengthen health systems to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to think about it like this. Antibiotic resistance is a global problem. It's a cross-border health threat, you mm-hmm. know, and the global response to it is only really going to be as strong as the weakest health system allows us to be, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that kind of ties back to, I mean, I think this is from React that I've always heard this, that not to minimize the issue of antibiotic resistance, but more people are still dying of infections that could be treated because of lack of access, not because of resistance. If yeah. we're talking about how to, one of the ways to approach this issue, it's it's a matter of access being a very central part of it. I know we're running out of time. I did want to take the chance to ask you a few questions about the report from your perspective. 
where would you say we should start? And I know you said from the beginning, this is not like a straight, this is step one, step two, step three. But I'm thinking from a situation where we have the limited resources that exist today. I mean, ideally, step one is get more resources, but past that, what do you think is where you personally would like to start? That's the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the key to get action happening is political prioritization. Mm. So working on a lot of the recommendations here kind of were based on a global governance sort of situation where the the different countries in the world work together and uh, put in either financial resources or how do we handle the procurement and the the manufacturing of existing antibiotics and that sort of thing. And it's, uh, you know, the the worst critic would probably see this as utopia, right? But (laughs) But I do think that it is important to have these perspectives put forward Hmm. to be able to insist on that representation matters. Yeah, It matters if we want solutions that are sustainable and effective. Mm -hmm. We need to have an inclusive way of working to develop such rules. Absolutely. And, you know, I can sit here and I can I can be uh, doing all my research and writing this report and coming up with these recommendations. But at the end of the day, I can't sit as a sort of 37 year old woman uh, from Denmark speaking on behalf of low and middle income countries. Yeah. You know, I'm not the right person to do that. I can certainly say that it's important to listen and take in their perspectives. But at the end of the day, we need to find a structure where those voices are heard, where those voices are included. It's a very realistic way to look at it that, okay, step one is get everybody on board. Yeah. That is true. I mean, a lot of these things, if you can get everybody on board, everybody's open and everybody's listening to the other perspectives, then a lot of the rest of it is easier. Yeah. I'd say not easy, but easier. I did want to ask one more thing. If you want to start with uh, trying to, basically build the foundation for this kind of global governance situation to building these, I say frameworks and uh, the, the organization that would in the end push antibiotic research and development and procurement and and the whole chain pretty much Mm -hmm. from a global perspective, who do you see to be ideal for starting this? I mean, like you said, it has to be representative, It's hard to get a driving, like you said, it has to go fast too. We're talking about a crisis that's that's looming. Mm. The drive has to come from somewhere. Is it appropriate that it comes from, say, the UN, from WHO, that sort of situation where we do see issues with, um, how do you say, from global politics, me being from the US, I mean, we had a president that just up and left the WHO for a while. So I, I yeah. see that there might be these hinders in the way that are completely about national populist interests a lot of the time no i think your question is very good you know it's about like how how (laughs) how reliable is a multilateral sort of solution really like how what's possible to do in that and i think yes we're never going to get a global government no (laughs) that's not going to be the case Uh, we've got global governance we've got institutions like the who that that are member state driven. And I think mm-hmm. that is really important that, you know, the WHO is a member state organization where everyone is represented mm-hmm. and where everyone has, you know, <laughs> an equal say. And that's yeah. really important. We can never avoid a situation where someone for one or the other reason gets up and leaves and doesn't want to be a part of the club anymore. But I think it's, it's probably the best we can 
we can do. It's the closest we can get to a forum that is appropriate. It, it will be really interesting to see after COVID what situation we are in. If we're in a yeah. situation where we're globally left more fragmented with different regions and parts of the world thinking that sovereignty and sort of national level action is the future yeah. or we're left in a place where you know there's a different realization that global problems require global solutions and that we have to kind of collaborate together in order to to be able to, to address this effectively yeah yeah I, I do think and hope that after this the the acute stage of the corona pandemic coronavirus pandemic is over we can kind of take a step back and try to learn from what happened and say, okay, this didn't work. How do we approach it next time and be more prepared in the future? I mean, there's a lot of talk about that there's going to be another pandemic. And I mean, and from our perspective, of course, antibiotic resistance is one that's already coming, mm. albeit slightly slower paced, but there will be other things as well. There's always been pandemics. This is just when we're in a time in history where we can do anything about it, pretty much. I wanted to ask if you have anything else that you want to say from um, maybe something that React is working on in the future or anything like that. From our perspective, we're trying really hard now to get this report out. There would mm -hmm. be important policy processes that we would want to target with the messages of this report. Mm -hmm. With you know the, the G7, the G20 is presumably looking at addressing uh, antibiotic resistance uh, this year, the World yeah. Health Assembly uh, towards the end of May. So all of those are kind of the opportunities where we're hoping to to be able to do some good advocacy. And yeah. And like you said, maybe capitalize a little bit on the, the urgency of what's been going on. And uh... yeah, and now we're, you know, and try to, without sounding too cynical, you know, making use of the possibilities that are also arising out of a, a pretty horrible situation yeah. <laughs> hopefully will be easier for some countries to come to yeah uh, there's a study that came out not long ago that looked at how much have governments actually spent on financing development of drugs diagnostics vaccines um, mm -hmm. for COVID-19 and it was if I'm not remembering it wrong it was 93 billion US dollars oh god <laughs> it's just such a mind-boggling yeah number that have been spent in the last 11 months, I think it was. Yeah. And we're struggling to even get one or two billion uh, into yeah. the field. Okay, but I wanted to thank you very much for sitting in a talk with us. It was really nice to hear about a lot of the background. It gave me a different perspective on the, the report itself and okay. a better understanding of some of the, the recommendations and kind of where you're coming from. So it was a really nice talk, I think. That was really nice to, uh, to be in this. Okay. Thank you for Thank you. Welcome back. So, Ava, what did you think about this interview? Hi. Yes. Um, yes, I really enjoyed the interview, especially because it's the first time that we are um, having someone that is more on the political spectrum of things here at the at the podcast. And we before have been talking a lot about how important, of course, political action in this topic is. And having someone with the experience that Helen had in the political spectrum first and then moving into more advocacy and working with uh, with groups like Doctors Without Borders and React is a very nice compliment to a lot of the conversations we've been having at the podcast yeah. here and the topics that we've been talking about. Mm. And especially, I mean, somebody who's kind of from an advocacy, like more active, engaged kind of 
situation in civil society and not just in from the research standpoint not trying to engage researchers but more the policy civil society side of it more i think it's really interesting to have somebody from that side um yeah i've had a lot of experience with it i think react has a good balance into the skills and expertise in their team and it's very nice to see people like Helle working hand in hand with scientists people that did spend a lot of time doing yeah. the science and now understanding the science and allowing people like Helle with the skills that Helle has and to bring this to to a different stage, so to speak. And mm -hmm. as she was saying, in like talking about her background, how important it is to to know the details of, of this field, you know, uh, and yeah. I'm talking about the political field, that is just for someone coming directly from a scientific background, it's like a whole different world. So you need to have people like her that know what's up yeah know what to expect and know how to handle it how to manage the situation and how to move forward and not just get stuck in like the the nitty-gritty details like we tend to do with a with this more science background we maybe get hung up on the specifics of exactly what how do we say it is <laughs> which is really not what we need so we talked a lot about the challenges facing uh, the issue of trying to improve access to antibiotics. And in this case, it's really global access to antibiotics. But I think one of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about a lot, it, but is discussed a lot in the report, is uh, the market approval issue that um, these drugs are basically only approved in certain countries when they're new. Mm -hmm. uh, and last line, you know. Uh, innovative drugs, they don't tend to get approved in many markets. I think the report says up to 20, basically. Uh, and that's a lot for it. It's usually fewer. And I think this is an issue that a lot of people don't think about. They think about accessibility being an issue from like a financial, personal finance standpoint and not a like national finance, you know, regulation issue of that the drug is not approved in that country. But I think maybe this is starting to kind of come more to people's understanding when we see like how the vaccines to COVID are being approved in different countries gradually, slowly, and things are changing and such. Also, speaking of COVID vaccines, it's also an example of how hard it can be to have a global agreements and global collaborations. I mean, the vaccines for COVID are not being distributed fairly across the world. It's not a needs basis. It's a financial basis. So this is an example, I think, of what we can, where we can make some progress. I mean, we can hopefully learn from this situation. Yeah, it was also interesting the part that you guys talked about that uh, there is a need to drive R&D from a really needs standpoint of some areas of the world that maybe are not so represented in the R&D yeah. nowadays, even though... And yes, you mentioned, and we know we have this priority pathogens list and all this like prioritization on paper. But then when it comes into where does the money go to, it's hard to to maybe have those minorities when it comes into the financial area. But there are actually majorities when it comes into the, the clinical problem. Yeah, kind of. the global to, disease burden. Uh, I hope we can also leave that link. I did mention it in the interview. Uh, the Pew Trust has updated their um, pipeline analysis mm -hmm. of the basically antibi antibiotics and microbials that are coming to market. Uh, and there really is an overrepresentation of drugs that maybe aren't high on the priority pathogens list but do affect high-income countries like C. diff that we mentioned in the interview. So mm -hmm. I hope we can leave that as well. It's an interesting analysis. Also something that 
I saw from John Ricks again. Yeah. That's everything. <laughs> it's <laughs> a very good source of information. Yeah, definitely. We will leave the link to that. And uh, anybody that is interested in learning a little bit more about how that pipeline looks. And as you said, I think one of the most important parts that we're talking about now is also access. And yeah. hopefully we can learn something from what's happening with the access to vaccines as well nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Just take the time to think, you know, what's why are things happening the way they are and what can we do to change and hopefully things get better. Yeah, I mean, as we were saying, we were commenting uh, about the report is that it is uh, perhaps utopical report in a sense that the recommendations of having this very thought through end-to-end approach it might Mm -hmm. be a little bit hard to implement because it's a lot of different details and the different parts of the process are also taken by different actors and stakeholders which makes it even more difficult to have a very coordinated approach but I think there is a, a space for these thought processes for suggesting what would be the best that we can have and we might be able to work in independent parts little by little but hopefully at some point we'll get into a much more coordinated process when it comes to what is it needed how do we develop it how do we ensure that it's available where it's available and when it's available and make sure that these medicines are useful to the maximum that they could be Mm -hmm. i really like that you ask her personally what is it that is the most likely next step forward in all this rather complicated and very extensive work that is needed and I think it's a very nice timing that this report is coming out because we are going to now talk in the news there is something that is now being developed and put out out there that maybe it's actually helping some of these stages that we are talking in the report and of course um, we have not really talked very detailed uh, about the different recommendations in the report I suggest anybody to just go into the link and take a look at it it's very well written yeah. it's uh, it's very inspiring I would say mm-hmm. when I was Absolutely. reading through it it's like yeah these are all these things we're talking all the time just put down in one document which is useful they really centri- like focus on some of the main issues and are really good at describing like, okay, why is this a problem? Why is this not ideal? Why is this a better solution mm-hmm. if we can get it? Yes. So I think this is a really good report if you want like a comprehensive look at the problem. It's excellent and it's a pretty quick read. Yeah, and I'm very happy that the, she mentioned that they are going to try to use this in some sort of bigger global assemblies where, you know, people might have the power or not to do something about it. So I think having this in a easy to read form, comprehensive and understandable way is going to be really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. With concrete, you know, recommendations for what to do. It's just very extensive. (laughs) Yeah. I I really hope to see some movement into, into the different parts that they brought up. But would we like to move on to the news that's associated with this? Yes, that would be actually really great. So uh, we're going to talk about something very related to the interview we had with Helle and also a little piece of something a little bit more scientific, like we like it here too. See you in the news soon. Welcome to our news for this month. So... We have, as we mentioned in our commentary section, we have a pretty relevant update. So we've actually talked to Carbex before, uh, or we've talked to the director of Carbex, uh, Dr. Kevin Utterson, and they actually, in collaboration with a lot of other partners and in response to a request from their awardees, have put out a stewardship and access plan development guide, 
which fits right along in with the report from React about what kind of needs to work. I mean, this is a small step along the way, but it's definitely a step. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important. Uh, I was really happy to read the news. Uh, we got it through the John Rex's uh, newsletter, yeah. of course, and that this is actually something that exists now. Basically, mm-hmm. um, what I understand is that the different companies that are awarded grants by Carvex, they need to provide with uh, an accessibility and a stewardship plan, so to speak, mm-hmm. which is like from the very early on, you are going to come up with this drug, you want to put into the market, how are you going to do that? In which markets are you going to try to have it? How are you going to ensure that it's properly used? And all these questions around stewardship. So I guess the awardees were like, Yes, we need to do this, but how do we do that? Especially yeah. if the early on R&D people are not people that are very used to having to do those stages. Mm-hmm. Can we get some sort of like global support to learn how to do this? And I think this is where this guide stems from. Yeah, and they've really taken the aid of a lot of actors. There's Wellcome Trust is involved, Guard P, uh, the UK government, Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Global AMR Innovation Fund. I mean, it's a list of big names uh, working with the business side of things with the R&D that have worked together to put this guide together, which I think is a it's a good example of some collaboration and some work on that front. So yeah, while it's, it is more from an industrial side, it's still... I mean, it still it has to involve the industry somehow, right? Because yeah. the antibiotics and the new drugs are not really made anywhere else at this mm-hmm. moment. There are some collaborations. And Carbex with is focusing on, you know, bringing up the small and middle-sized companies. Exactly. And it's good to point out also that uh, Carbex is not only granting projects that have to do with Hanon's new antibiotics, but they're also... Uh, working with diagnostics now, diagnostic tools, and also with vaccines. So these kind of stewardship and access plans extend beyond this new antibiotic sphere, but also all these other tools that are needed as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that they bring up in this guide are kind of things that uh, React touches on in their reports that talk about, you know, looking for obstacles and constraints that the product developer might have for achieving access and stewardship. And also just, you know, defining what the product is. I also really like that they have chosen to make this guide publicly available. Mm -hmm. Because you could imagine a situation where maybe they create such a guidelines and such a structure to help their awardees to get the plans going. But Mm -hmm. it's something a little bit more internal. But the fact that they decided to make this guide available publicly means that any other sort of actor that is trying to develop tools or new antibiotics or new drugs could use this guide to set up a proper or at least a better plan for how these drugs are going to be marketed and made yeah. accessible. They want, They also bring up this uh, market approvals thing that we talked about, that it's very limited, usually the countries that these drugs are marketed in. So part of this plan should also include strategies to ensure marketing approvals are received in a timely manner and in targeted territories. And then they also talk about, okay, what about places where you're not seeking market approval? Uh, strategies to support stewardship and access there, strategies for exploiting project IP rights. So basically saying, how do we remove the hinders to make this possible to market these drugs in other places, even if you, your company is not going to do it, Mm -hmm. which I think is definitely a step in the right direction. It's not just, you know, stewardship. It's not about just the finances. It's also about, you know, licensing, marketing and all that kind of thing. And it's 
now with this plan going to be part of how they get approved and the help they get from Carbex and everything like that. So it is kind of a step in improving the problem. Yeah, I th- I think the same that it is not like a m- magic bullet, as they used to say, yeah. for one thing fix- fits all. There's not going to be just one solution that is going to yeah. fix all of this. But definitely this is a very useful guide and it should kind of incentivize these companies to have a plan for this mm-hmm. from the very beginning and make sure that the projects are solid, not only when it comes to the science and these antibiotics being useful, but also about how are they going to be put into the market and and made yeah. available so to speak and it makes everything a bit more transparent too because it's very above board what is expected of these companies what do we want them to do what do we want them to aim for what are their goals and i think that's really important when we're talking about these maybe big market entry or rewards and that sort of thing if you're going to have that sort of thing you've got to have very clear demands i guess is the word i'm looking for but it's not really appropriate but i think it helps to be very open about that Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot of transparency from the very beginning and trying to yeah, make it make it the best possible. We're going to leave in the show notes you have access to the press release and also the new stewardship and access website at Carvex and the PDF of the whole guide as well. So take a look at that and also maybe share further with anybody that you think might be interested in in using it. And for our second piece of news today, we are going on the other side and talking about a pretty scientific and experimental article that was just published recently in the ISME journal, accepted in January 21st of this year, actually. And the title of this article is Non-Nutritive Sweeteners Can Promote the Dissemination of Antibiotic Resistance Through Conjugative Gene Transfer. It's a little bit long and a little bit technical, but we have talked about some of these concepts before. The first of them to be conjugative gene transfer. This is basically the transfer of genes, in this case antibiotic resistant genes, through plasmids, conjugative plasmids. These are extra pieces of DNA that can be in the bacteria that are able to be sent from one bacteria called the donor to another bacteria called the recipient. And what they are testing in this article is the hypothesis that perhaps non-nutritive sweeteners, we're going to call them from now on artificial sweeteners, can promote the dissemination of these plasmids that can contain antibiotic resistant genes. The hypothesis for this paper comes from the idea that some compounds like antibiotics and other compounds that cannot create a stressful situation for uh, bacteria have been shown to increase the conjugation frequency. This means how often does a plasmid transfer from a donor to a recipient bacteria. This is important to study and understand because it's one of the fastest way to transfer readily available resistance from a bacteria to another bacteria. This is what's called horizontal, as opposed Mm -hmm. to vertical transfer, which is basically mother-to-daughter cell. Yeah, inherited. Yeah, um, the transfer of horizontal genes basically means that there can be an increase also in the presence of uh, resistant and also resistant variants can move within species but also between species which they are also looking into this yeah this is a good example of the situation where 
resistance genes that are carried by a commensal or, you know, the bacteria that's carried by us that's not harmful at all, that's just good bacteria, how the resistance genes can spread to something that might be harmful in the wrong situation. So this is a very risky thing if yeah. you're thinking about the, the larger picture with antibiotic resistance. Yeah, pathogenic bacteria getting these resistant genes from non-pathogenic bacteria. Yeah. So what they looked is if we have bacteria that contain a plasmid together with bacteria that doesn't have a plasmid and we put these artificial sweeteners in the mixture, do we see an increase on this transfer frequency yeah. and the overall result that they saw in this paper is that yes there is an increase conjugation frequency in certain conditions mm -hmm. and these conditions might be related with which plasmid are present and also the concentration of these artificial sweeteners but in general they do find evidence that there can be an increase into this uh, transfer if sweeteners are present. Yeah, and the concentrations they were looking at where they do see conjugation increases are relevant concentrations. They talk about that these are concentrations that can be found in human urine and the in the human body in waste treatment kinds. I mean, they talk about several environments that can be relevant in the situation. Uh, I can also bring up the artificial sweeteners that they're tested in the study. It's um, saccharin, sucralose, aspartame, and Acylfame potassium. Uh, they didn't see as much of an increase in the rate in, for saccharin, but in some situations they did also see an increase in the plasmid conjugation with saccharin as well. Yes. What they also did is try to explain or look for why is this frequency increased. Mm -hmm. And as the original hypothesis was that this could be a similar process to what happens with antibiotics being present. And this is because there is a stress response induced in the bacteria that that can lead to an increased transfer of these plasmids. They found this to be the case in this situation as well. But the interesting thing is that when they did experiments to compensate for the presence of this stress response, which is they basically avoid the stress response to be triggered by adding mm -hmm. something else in the experiment, but still have the artificial sweeteners in, they saw that the transfer was still increased at some level, perhaps less than if the stress response is uh, present, but still there was some increase. And what they saw is that the permeability of the cell, in this case, the donor cell seems mm -hmm. to have a role into the increase of this transfer frequency. Somehow the presence of the artificial sweeteners make the donor cell perhaps more permeable and that also increases the chances that the plasmid is going to be transferred from one bacteria to the other one. They do also rightfully point out that this is all done in with lab media and in, in very in vitro settings and it's not really you know they're not testing anything in a human or an animal so there's w more work to do to really show like if this does happen in in the human body and other environments but they do i mean they do talk about that this does it this might be occurring in environments outside of the human body like you said in wastewater treatment plants or in, in wastewater uh or in urinary tract and that sort of thing that maybe are more relevant with different kinds of tests um but it's, it's definitely a step to, yes. this is where you start. This is how science starts. You know, you yeah. have a, a hypothesis, you go and test it, and that might mean something relevant for life conditions. Then mm -hmm. you have to test further. Of yeah. course, this article deals with artificial sweeteners, which is something that is readily 
present in a lot of foods, in a lot of products that people drink and eat every day. So this article has been picked up by several uh, news outlets. We are going to leave a link to some news, popular news article as well. But whoever is listening to this, of course, I want you to take this with a pinch of salt. You know, yeah. this doesn't mean that just because you or someone you know might be drinking uh, Pepsi Max or Cola Zero, it means that right away there's going to be transfer of antibiotic resistance in their guts. This is yeah. not really what it means. It just means that it could be a potential for this to be happening and we need to look into it and then mm -hmm. see if this actually plays a big role or not such a big role. But the phenomenon is there and it's happening. And it's worth, I mean, there's a lot of things that can cause an increase in conjugation frequency exactly. occurring. So this is, you know, part of a larger thing about how what we do, what we eat, and everything like that affects the microbial world around us. I mean, it's way more than just this. Yes, exactly. And I think there's a point to understand how does our microbiota react to the things that we eat and the mm -hmm. way that we live as well. Because more and more we're getting, you know, to know that microbiota is a very important part of our bodies and a very important of our health. Yeah. So in order to understand how the things we eat or we have around us can affect it is pretty interesting but with that i think we're pretty good for this month <laughs> yes uh, this is it for the month of april uh, i would like to just ask you if your podcast uh, server has the possibility to leave a review or leave a rating to the podcast it will help us a lot if you can just click the stars that are down in the in the app because we're trying to get some numbers into what people think about this podcast how many people are listening to this podcast so it would really really help us for the for the upcoming uh, reviews of, of this outreach project in, in mm. it of itself thank you so much and we hope to have you back next month and hopefully it's a bit warmer and nicer and less corona-y. <laughs> we hope month by month. You can always better. hope. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>